this is a first of hopefully more conversations with Federico Negro of Canoa and Anthony Slumbers uh, from Wheel Innovation Academy and more. And myself, John Manageri from Base Two. Great that you're here. Thanks for um, joining in. I have a very simple idea uh, that because I'm aware that all three of us are passionate about sustainability, particularly in the context of the built environment and real estate, that we kind of have a kind of friend chat about it uh, and see if anybody else finds that useful and if the conversation extends any further. I mean, to set up just the premises of it, I'm pretty sure that the built environment and the, the, the property sector can do an enormous amount more than it's currently doing to, to engage on sustainability and climate. Um, but how, I guess, is the question. I mean, why don't we do this, right, just to kind of kick it off? How about we just like do a tiny round, uh, maybe start with you, Fed, and just say, you know, why we're interested in this theme at all, um, what we're working on in relation to it, and um, kind of what we think the broader problem is in society or in the economy or whatever. We'll come to AEC and property separately next, but let's just kind of frame our interest and our, our sense of the, of the issue. Sure. To, to give uh, as direct of an answer to your question um, as I can, um, you know, I think you're asking why is this meaningful? Why does this matter um, when we talk about sort of sustainability in the built environment? Um, my personal sort of approach to this, um, frankly, comes from something that's very personal, which is that I wanted to be able to, um, uh, you know, we have this sort of uh, big belief uh, that I should be able to not make things worse <laughs> in my day-to-day -day work. Um, and uh, I think for many, um, you know, many years and certainly through my training, um, we've been uh, uh, architects and engineers, uh, which is really the fields where I come from originally have been sort of trained to think that, um, you know, we actually don't have a lot of control and that we actually are subservient to some degree to the needs of, of clients and, 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 uh, and customers in that way. And so I've, you know, post WeWork have made it uh, a point of mine to, uh, I'd say, take a little bit more responsibility with what I'm, with what I'm doing personally. Um, so it's meaningful to me because I want to, I want to be able to, um, I think, wake up in a few uh, in a couple of decades and look back and say that um, uh, my work in you know post 40 was less impactful on the planet than my work up to uh, turning 40 years old to be frank um, and uh, um, and so from a personal perspective that's that's really sort of where my day-to-day -day is, is 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 driving in terms of tactics of how to do that obviously there's you know probably where this conversation is going and we're testing some things and trying some things, but um, really what drives me from a mission perspective is like, um, I can't keep sitting back being like, well, the client didn't pay for this or the, we didn't want to do this or these kinds of, you know, very, very, I think, empty kind of excuses that still exist out there, um, which to, to a high degree also uh, 
narrowed, drastically narrowed down my job search post rework because I, I try to put everybody through this and you said, you know, okay, who can I work with or for that is looking at the world this way? And quite frankly, there just weren't any, um, you know, the traditional fee-for-service model doesn't leave its doors open to, um, uh, to I think, having an opinion at this, at this level. So. Do you, do you not think that a lot of that is, is changing because society is changing and the particularly the investment environment is changing in the, in the sense of when it was okay to just tick a few boxes and say, oh, you know, we love our people, we love our planet and all that, and then you didn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. Then I can quite see how you, you always end, end up being sort of pushed push down the accountability side but it seems to be I, I get the feeling that actually changes in society are working if you like in in our favor that particularly from the investor point of view and don't forget i'm over, over here in europe we're a lot more we're a lot more into green things than perhaps perhaps the u.s is and it's taken frankly more more seriously but just like guns yeah yeah just like guns. <laughs> I'm not going to go into this week, <laughs> but in in terms of if you talk to investors over here, they they are now under very strong pressure to actually to actually be funding be funding with a green cap on, and the ESG really matters now. Sustainability really matters. And it's it's you know the Larry Larry Fink thing at the beginning of the year that you know climate risk is investment risk in his letter to shareholders and and I thought that that's probably the the best five five words for the green movement ever because once once the the money needs to be concerned about this whether or, whether or not they care about it but you know if they care about their money and climate risk is investment risk it has to start funding more and taking this side more more seriously so i'm i'm, I'm wondering to to an extent my to your life and society have got 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 in, in sync and are nicely changing at the same time yeah i think i think there's something to that for sure i think that there is a there is a um a very macro scale conversation that has now made it from the marketing department to the investment department. Um, I think that's certainly true. I think the how to or where to do that maybe hasn't figured out yet, hasn't been figured out yet, and, it, and, it, and that's okay because it will take some time to get there. Um, the, from, a, from a product person's perspective, what's been difficult for me is that I think that product is three or four steps after investment decisions or at least investment strategy as it should be and so we haven't closed this gap yet and so um um you know we've it's difficult for me to see it um on a day-to-day basis as of yet i can tell you you know um in terms of uh let's say a topic that's very very present to me right now which is venture funding for sustainable ventures uh, even though that's increased tremendously uh, over the last over the last decade, um, you know, I think it's uh, yeah, I forget the exact figure, but it's you know over two or three hundred percent of a sort of increase in, in, in available funding and, and ventures and those kinds of things. The, the reality is that it's still 
very, very, very small. Um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to um, uh, let's say more generic non-mission based um, uh, investment. And so we're out there fundraising right now, for example, and I and I've talked to maybe forty or fifty different funds. The consistent feedback I get is. Uh, cool, we get your mission, but that's not your business. What's your business model? And and I and I'm I'm trying to in in very much the same way that you've described it. It's like well, in, you know, the investment risk. Uh, these two things have to be tied together. Um, and and it's still very much the sort of like gatekeepers of the world of, of fundraising still very much see it as two separate things. It's like okay, well, it's nice for you to have a mission, but you know, what's what's your you know. How to, how are you going to make money tomorrow? And and really, what I found that they're asking is, um, the <clears throat> the rules that you're willing to break in your own mission to be able to you know to get to profitability or to get to some you know OKR that's that's necessary. Um, and so, I, I you know maybe it's a protracted way of saying this, but I think I think you're I think you're right. I think the conversation at a very macro scale has changed. I think that conversation when we're talking about very large asset managers is changing. I think the conversation around cities is changing, so it's maybe forcing those folks to change as well. The trickle down effect is not as clear yet, at least from from my vantage. But what but what happens when? And I don't, I'm not incredibly well informed about this, but my understanding is that certainly in, in New York, there's a whole raft of legislation talking about buildings having to emit X percent less carbon emissions by 2025 and then 2030, and then there's a penalty again, if you know, if you don't do that. And I was just struck, I don't know if you saw it, I was struck last week that there was a piece came out that saying that uh, Tesla made something like 400 and, 400 and something million dollars last year. Just, just from selling carbon credits, and basically Tesla made four hundred fifty million out of other car makers who are so you know carbon disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, that Tesla could just sell them an incredible number of carbon, and it, it strikes me one, you're, it's not far to twenty twenty five, and when no. if you don't take if you don't take this stuff seriously and you don't reduce your carbon emissions by, I think it's is it forty percent they've got to reduce in in New York. By forty percent by twenty thirty or something like that, it, it, it's um, quite a significant number. Yeah, and you're not going to get there by saying, "Oh, well, that's very nice, Fred, but what's your business model?" <laughs> that's it, exactly right. It, it seems to me that you're going to hit a your 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 interlocutors are more likely to hit a hit a wall faster, <laughs> faster than you do if they take that attitude because you get stuck. Let's let's swing back to that in one second. I just want to kind of excavate a little bit more to kind of frame it up uh, for people that maybe are coming from less close to the conversation than us. Before we kind of just get some intro from from Anthony, Fed, why um, why do you care about this? I mean, you, you you've you've explained that you know you, I, I don't want to say you feel guilty, but you certainly feel some motivation to you know make the the next phase of your work um, less impactful or inversely more impactful on you know positive change. But wh wh where does the motivation to give a shit about this come from? Because that itself is always pretty interesting to me. Um, no, no, go ahead. Um, uh, John, I'm still getting uh, some intermittent uh, kind of cutting off, but 
you're coming back to why do I care about this? I mean, frankly, I think we should all care about this. I mean, we're here on this earth. We're a community, um, and maybe this is, um, maybe this exposes my politics a bit um, uh, too much. But the reality, from from my perspective, I grew up in Latin America. I grew up um, um, in Uruguay specifically. It's a, it's where culturally our connection to uh, nature is something that's very important. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we're a country that sort of lives lives off of our natural resources in a in a and, and we're a tiny country, and so the sort of very effective and efficient management of these natural resources is something that we, you know, sort of grew up with. It's 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 around us, and so I've, um, um, you know, let's say fast forward many years, I've I've been part of when I was a Sort of young architect working on these sort of like mega giant projects where, you know, sustainability was like two three pages in a brief where we said that somehow or another we're gonna you know put some solar panels on something and this was early two thousands and so and that was it and um, all the way to you know all of our work through Case where we we worked with. Uh, you know, we had more than a hundred clients globally that were doing everything from building hospitals and in deserts to building stadiums in China to building towers, glass towers and everywhere. Um, and we thought it was great and amazing work and so cool to be able, able to be involved in all these things. But the reality was that there was no, um, you know, we were, because we were several steps beyond or let's say downfield from some of the larger decisions, we wouldn't question it. It's like, well, should we be building this at all? And the reality is that that question can't be answered with, uh, you know, by the architect by the time that decision is already done. Because if it's not you, there's twenty or thirty architects behind you that will more than happily, you know, take up, uh, you know, take up work. So um, the the you know like the real answer why why I give a shit is because I I frankly I think we should all give a shit, and I'm quite frustrated by the lack of action in my particular industry. I think that within 10 or 20 years, if we're not careful, the built environment will be the, the petrochemical industry of the 21st century. I think that um, we are making the world um, in the image of something that is not uh, optimistic. It's actually quite pessimistic. It's not, it, we're always looking back at what's been done before as opposed to what we need to be doing in the future. And any time that we talk about innovation, any time that we talk about sort of forward thinking in my particular industry, it's really about shape shifting. It's about, you know, like check out this new cool form that I can do, check out this new cool whatever that we can do. But it doesn't speak fundamentally about humans. It doesn't speak fundamentally about making our cities like really, truly better. Uh, it doesn't speak about any of those things. So I'm frankly a much bigger fan of the urban design and the landscape design communities who are, I think, much more meaningfully engaging these topics and architecture and engineering are at the building side. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, I, 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 I guess to some degree, John, I struggle with answering why do I care about this? Because I, 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 I don't know, I'm human and I'm alive and I'd like to stay alive <laughs> and I, and I have children who I would like to also be able to, you know, move forward. I mean, like the mission of our of, of our company is specifically um, uh, to to lower the bar to healthier environments without uh, removing future generations' ability to do the same. Um, and so, 
we have to think about um, uh, in a very specific way what we put into the world and then what the impact of that physical thing in the world is to the world even beyond when we've left it. Um, and, and we don't think in those types of timeframes. We don't think in those kinds of timelines. It's, it's important to me and I, and I give a shit because maybe that's just who I am and I, and I really wanna, you know, many, hopefully many years from now, when I look back at my career, I can stand somewhere and say proudly, like I may have failed completely from a business perspective, but at least I can stand behind what I failed. And I, and I, and I think that that will make me happy. And then sure, if there was, you know, if, if I was able to also <laughs> feed myself and that would have been great. Um, but you know, that's, that's, that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it all on the line that I believe, I think Anthony, like you are describing that the world will get, the world will over time, it'll get there as the near term, let's say financial tactics sort of catch up with larger transitioning trends that happen on a, you know, on a, let's say on a more like on a larger scale decades and you know centuries uh level my, my question sort of framing question was also for you fed said something very profound about you know wondering whether the built environment was going to become the fossil fuel uh industry of our era but really the question you know the way i interpret his answer to why do you care about this is how can you not care about it i mean what how how absurd is it to imagine that everything's okay just to carry on when we know we're damaging you know the livability of the planet what do you have a personal way into this sustainability thing anthony well i, I think that's exactly the point how, how, how can you not care about it it's slightly ludicrous and ridiculous to, to not care about it and i actually i actually think that frankly that the the most interesting people do care do care about it the people who don't care about it, I don't think are terribly interested in, and are very unlikely to produce anything of any great, any great merit. Certainly, sort of artistically, aesthetically, I, th I think people that approach the real estate industry with a purely fi financial bent are actually extremely unlikely to ever produce anything that interesting in today's day and age. I mean, there certainly was a time when people didn't have to care about this and created great great things but I, th I think if you're approaching the real estate industry today you have to approach it from the, from the basis of how can we build something better how can we build something faster cheaper more more sustainable more beautiful more suited to people's actually actual needs how can we satisfy needs how can we make people more effective more efficient more more happy healthier well I, th I simply do not understand why you'd even bother doing anything apart from that and I don't think actually the the financial returns are going to go to anyone who who doesn't pay attention to this because clearly your, your your customer now does and for whatever whatever we say about anything soon sooner or later what the customer wants the customer gets it's similar if you look at talk to people in the investment community they say oh yes well i i want a good covenant on a 15 year lease and you think well yeah that's fine but you, if you um, if you can find a, a good a good covenant that's going to sign a 15-year lease, then whoopee, lucky you. But when you get to a situation where no no one with a good covenant is prepared to sign anything like that, well, funny enough, you'll find the market the market changes. So you know, ultimately, um, the 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 industry the industry is changing where it's going to be demand driven much more than 
supply driven because it used to be the case um, that you had to you had to go to an office to do your work in the same way as you had to go to a shop to go shopping. So if you think about it, you know, ten years ago the retail real estate industry suddenly suddenly became aware that, funnily enough, the consumer doesn't need a physical shop to go shopping. And largely they lived in denial for ages. And 10 years later, we are where we are. And funny enough, we need a lot less retail space. And the retail space we do need has to be a lot better and has to pay a lot more attention to the customer. So the office market is really a decade behind the retail market in the sense of, and this is, of course, something that COVID has uh, absolutely emphasize we don't need you we don't actually need an office at all now that's not to say we don't want one and it's not to say the office doesn't have a good function but at an absolute bottom line sorry we just do not need this this thing anymore because we've lasted five five months without without offices and funny enough okay lots of things are hard but the world hasn't stopped you know, if this had happened 20 years ago, the world would have stopped. It wouldn't have been 10% or 20% drop in GDP. It would have been 90%. But now we realize we can function with, without offices. So the whole mindset of the office industry has to start paying attention to, okay, my customer no longer needs what I've got to sell. So how do I make them want it? And I think once you change the basic mindset of the industry from, from selling something that people need to selling something that they've got to make the customer want, then I think so much more comes into the equation. And certainly one of, one of the major factors for the younger generations, because we talk about millennials now, but millennials are quite old. You know, millennials can be 40 now. <laughs> so they're, so, they're, they're, not so they're not so young. But also the really interesting thing, and this is another thing that uh, Larry Fink came, made, made the point of in his letter to shareholders in Jan January, that the younger, the, the early millennial generation is actually getting into seats of power. It's getting into positions where they are, they are the big honchos. And there is definitely a different mindset of a 40-year-old today or someone in their 40s than someone in, the, in their 60s. And whilst I think the whole notion of, oh, millennials are X, Y, Z is a nonsense and you shouldn't categorize whole, whole um, age, age cohorts, there certainly is a lot more interest in sustainability. Because if you're 40 and we really screw this up, well, you're going to have a bloody nasty retirement, aren't you? If you're 65 and we screw this up, well, I mean, like Trump, he doesn't care. He'd be dead before anything happens. And, you know, anyone in their 60s is going to be dead before anything really bad happens. But if you're 40 and we really screw this up, and in 10, 15 years, the proverbial has really hit the fan, well, that's, that's you on the line. So you can have all the money in the world, but if you're, if you're in a world on flame, then... Um, <laughs> You've got a problem. So I think the whole mindset is this dual thing of even if you don't care about this, tough, because your customer now does, and the customer genuinely is changing, and the customer with the, if you like, the modern mindset is getting into a position where they hold the purse strings. And when that happens, I think you're going to get really, really a lot of change. So 
partly I'm into this because I just think it will end up, you know, don't, don't forget, I've got, a, I've got a history of art, a history of art background, so I'm a bit of a lovey. So, I, you know, I like beautiful things. And I think people who are interested in this, this sort of thing are more likely to be the types of creating beautiful things than the people who are just in, interested in the, the dollars, and, dollars and cents. So that's just, that's the lovey reason for it. But the Adam Smith reason for it is hell. I think I'm going to have a hell of a lot better business if I'm really into this, because my customers are going to want to be into this, and I see a huge market, huge market for it. So it, it it works both ways. You can have the soft the soft reason for it, and the and the hard Adam Smith reason for it. I, I, I kind of well, I kind of want to interrogate what you what you both think really needs to change. I'll come back to that in one second because I'm just going to share um, sort of my own way in, and and it basically kind of maps to what you guys uh, have said. I mean. When, since I was a kid, I was trying to make sense of the world, probably because I had a, you know, relatively, I mean, a moderately distressed, you know, sort of upbringing compared to some people. And I was like, how does this all make sense? And it doesn't make sense. And, I, and I've just kept on that track, right? And, 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 it, and it's just this, I, I wish I could be more relaxed about the idea that destroying resources is fine or destroying living things for no reason is fine. I just find that immensely distressing. And it's particularly distressing because, I mean, I have an attachment to nature in, in, you know, in, in the way that many people do. I, it's beautiful and it's, you know, it's in a sort of romantic sense. But I, I love nature in, in also in a physical sense. It's just interesting and well-structured and resources and engineering and science and cognition are, are just clever things. And the idea that we would just dump all that is, is, is just a kind of intellectual and moral crime in one in one package and so i think that that spans you know very much what you guys have, have shared as your own uh, motivation and you might you know sort of inroad to this which is how i kind of come to finally leave to kind of you know bring these conversations up is that i went my career started at the united nations so i wrote policy and did after un science and consulting and gradually made my way into architecture took a post-professional diploma and started practicing as a kind of sustainable architect and urban sustainability consultant and began to realize that the amount of change we needed to engage with was incredibly far from what even the self-professed, you know, kind of gurus or leaders or sort of pop stars of sustainability in, in architecture were, were really dealing with. Um, and so I began to get in, you know, involved in more sophisticated things like, you know, basically what, what I do now, design buildings around sustainable living, basically service-based consumption and trying to bring these strands together. I've got an article, I may have mentioned that to you, um, and it's becoming a prop motto about that in the next, in, shortly. But um, I, I find myself now in a situation, which is why I wanted to have this conversation with you feeling that there are things going on. And you, you point to a bunch of, you know, good signs, Anthony, but my concern actually is that resources are coming in, assets, the greatest asset class in history at the table in a broad sense, but I'm not sure people know what to do, right? What I want to happen is that people like ourselves, both, you know, sort of with our work, but also in some way, maybe with conversations like this that hopefully can expand, help people to get to grips with what needs to change, not just that things should change. That's a great starting point, but what do we do, right? What do we do? So, so let, me, let me put you on the spot now, Anthony, in that regard. Give me like a few 
I don't want to say top five, but like be specific about what you would like real estate developers, owners, managers, and particular financiers to specifically do. Uh, and let's see, let's see where that lands because I, I'm, I'm wondering if they know what to do. I agree people are getting more engaged, but what do they think they should do? I think people do know, do not know what, what should be done. I think perhaps it's more of an issue if they don't quite know how, how to do it or how to change the structure of the industry to allow it. I mean, so many, so many of the problems within the industry I think are, are incentives driven, you know, because of the, the because of the way it's set up. I mean, you take you see, I I, I see the I see the long term lease as an absolute curse, because if I lease my building to you for fifteen years, up until you sign sign that lease, you're my best buddy and I love you and we're going to be best mates forever. As soon as you as soon as you signed it, I don't really care. You know, because you're going to have to pay me four times a year, and for whatever the indus the industry says, it doesn't. It in that world, it didn't really care because it didn't need to care, and that's not an indictment of the industry. That's just a reflection of 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 incentives. You you know, you lease it, away you go, on probably sell it, and then on onto the next onto the next building. So there's a lot of incentives um, that need to be changed. Just just something straight like en energy e efficiency. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a specialist in this area, but from what everything I read, there seems to be a considerable amount of low-hanging fruit for your average office building in terms of energy efficiency. It seems to be that there's, to, to reduce energy usage by 5, 10, 15% doesn't seem for your average rather ordinarily designed building to be that to be that hard. And I, and I sort of have a suspicion if it was really pushed, it can be considerably more than that. Well, even if we reduce the energy consumption of every building by 10%, just by doing all the obvious easy things, then that has a, has a material di difference. Uh, so I think, you know, obviously en energy is a, huge, is a huge thing. I'm not gonna get into the, um, the Im embedded carbon problem in, in construction the building in the, in the first place, because that's clearly a, a really big deal. Until you have low, en low energy steel and low energy concrete, that's going to be going to be tricky. But in, on the operations of of a building, we should be able to manage it energy efficiently. But we should also be able to manage the environmental conditions of a building much much better. And again, this is a, this is a, a something that's come out of COVID that we've known for for decades. The environmental conditions have an impact on cognitive function, but again, within the industry, no one's really cared because this, the customer has has not asked that much about it. But there's not going to be a decent a decent uh, office customer, potential customer in the market today who's not going to who's not going to pay an awful lot of attention to environmental conditions. What is the air quality? Well. How, what is the circulation? How much fresh air is in there? All, all these very obvious way, ways of creating a better environment that enable people to be more productive. I was talking to someone earlier who was talking about who, who has either suffered really badly or died from COVID. And primarily, it's older generations and those who have some sort of chronic illness, which might be as simple as obesity. And, and he said, this was a, a, a US gentleman, 
And so I don't know if, they, if the numbers are right, but he said something like 60% of the US population actually has some sort of chronic illness, primarily around diabetes or, 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 um, or, or obesity. And, and he said, well, really, it should be, it should be an aim of a company and in combination with their, with their landlord to how do, we, how do we help people be healthier? Because again, just going, it's obviously the right thing to do, but it's also on a pure Adam Smith thing. If you want to, to make your, your company more, more secure, then you have a distinct advantage in having healthier employees. So to what extent, what extent can the, the building, the building help, help on that? So I, I really think just, just on the, the most obvious things around energy consumption and then environmental conditions, because we absolutely know if we put someone in really good environmental conditions, their cognitive function will be potentially as good as it can be. Whereas if we put them in bad environmental conditions, however, however bright they are, they will not be in, they will not be operating at maximum um, maximum uh, pro productivity. So just just there, there's two starting points, and where this kind of I mean, in a way, that doesn't some of that doesn't sound very much to do with sus sustainability, but it is because you're not going to get to those outcomes with with looking at the whole system, the systemic way a building operates, and how you break that down into component parts, and in each component part. How can we make that a bit more a bit more sustainable? So just just simply on on those two, we know that we know we know they make a big difference. Yeah. I, mean, I, I would say if, if, if one way of, of sort of 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 interpreting those two strands, right? Energy is is arguably one of the big ones, in particularly operational energy. That's where I think buildings have fallen down in green design. But if you interpret environmental Conditions to include, you know, how people behave, how they structure their lives, you know, what we are designing for, which I think is what you're implying by, you know, breaking it back down into pieces. That covers a huge range of issues. Fed, I mean, do you? Because because you've 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 got a company that has a kind of sustainability mission. If you could, is is that the lens through which you see it? Maybe you could explain a bit more about what you're doing on that. But in general, like, what impact? would you love to have? Like, what are the big issues that you want to, to drive change on? Yeah, I, I think it's, um, <clears throat> I think the way that Anthony sort of framed the Adam Smith uh, rubric is, is kind of how we see the bottom line gains that we're trying to develop uh, uh, as a company. And so I'll, 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 I'll tell you, so I'll give you a description of how we see the world, but effectively, in the world of commercial real estate, which is very vast, in the subsets, the very specific subsets of office and retail are being gutted at the moment. And they're being gutted at the moment, of course, because of COVID, but really because the transaction that Anthony was describing between a landlord finding somebody to sign a 10 or 15 year lease and then a occupier who is now on the hook to paying rent for those 10 or 15 years, was a very one-sided transaction. It is normal, it, it, like very one-sided transactions are not good for business in the long run anyway, right? At some point, a balance is going to um, uh, want to emerge. And I think what we're seeing is that that balance is beginning to emerge in the sense that the 
the landlord occupier relationship is now being um, uh, equalized in some way. Um, and so um, there's plenty of landlords out there who think the world is going to go back to normal, we're going to get a vaccine and everything's going to be fine. That the reality is that that's just simply not the case. And the reason why that's not the case is because the moment that every large, medium, and small-scale occupier had the opportunity to think about a world where they didn't have to sign a lease, everything changed. And even when things do come back to normal, we're still not going to sign leases because we don't have to. Because now there's a world where there is these opcos uh, and these sort of real estate arbitrage players, these layers that are popping up um, that are allowing you to effectively get around the lease as this sort of stick in the mud kind of um, um, uh, remnant of a 20th century commercial real estate. 21st century from that perspective is gonna look very different. So why does this matter to, to us? Because if you don't have 10 or 15 years on a lease, you don't have tenant improvement uh, allowances by commercial real estate landlords that are financed through third parties um, against the cash flow of this 10 or 15 year contract. And so before our, our product solution to offices was we're going to build this you know, crazy, amazing thing. It's going to be custom built just for you because you're super special and you deserve all the mahogany in the world. And we're going to do this and we're going to build it to last for 15 years. And actually we're going to build it to last like 40 years because hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you're going to sign extensions on that lease and everything's going to be fine. Well, the reality and we know this from a lot of the research we've done over the last decade or so, is that definitely in retail, but now this is expanded into workplace, the, the, the needs of the occupant to change, physically change the space, are much more rapid than they used to be. And in a world where there is no longer a long-term lease, but maybe there's a flexible agreement or there's a management agreement that's signed where an, a tenant is, hey, we're going to be here for 36 months. What is the product solution for 36 months? I can tell you this, it's not traditional design and construction because it takes you 12 to 18 months just to get the traditional construction built. And so nobody's gonna give you 18 months of free rent and $75 a square foot in Manhattan numbers to be able to then you know, drop another $100, $150 a square foot for the fit out bit for, for 18 months of use or even for 36 months. The, the, the product, because the underlying economics of the system are changing, the product, the physical product is gonna happen. So what are we doing? We're saying we only designed things, uh, we only deploy things that can be reused. What does this do? We are effectively a, a flexible space provider that doesn't do construction. And why don't we do construction? Because construction is permanent. Because construction, it's fantastic when you're building a building that is meant to stay up for 200 years to 300 years. But from a product perspective, you think about the life cycle, the, life, the, the shelf life that you want to design into a product, right? It's a fundamental question of product design. And as architects and engineers, the answer was never, the question was never asked because the answer was always as absolutely as wrong as you possibly can. That is no longer the case. The answer for me now with some of our customers is like, I need something for 36 months. It's like, okay, great. So the deployable conference room or classroom or private office or chair or wall or whatever flexible duct doesn't have to be here for 50 years or 25 years or 50 years. 
it really has to perform for 36. And so now you have this sort of uh, tension that exists where the vitras of the world make product for 50 years, but my end user is only going to use it for three. This is, this is an opportunity to bring things like reuse if the supply chain bit can be figured out, to bring things like reuse into a market that says, okay, um, I, I like to tell people that you know, the world of authors today is, is, is effectively, it's like imagine a world without Marriott, right? You go to a hotel and you have to bring your own bed and your own mattress and your own sheets because the space is empty. There's no furniture in it. And so that's the world of offices. And today, and what we're saying is like, oh, wait, we need a Marriott because um, in hospitality, you may only stay there for one night. Well, in office space, you may only stay there for six months. You may only stay there for 18 months. Um, or at least you may only stay there in its current arrangement for that long. And 18 months from now, we're going to take what was focus work into a classroom space or a, a whatever. And you want these physical changes to flex in the same way at the same speed that your organization is flexing. And so in a world where we're promising space as a service, you just can't deliver hard-coded interior space because that's really not space as a service. The space itself has to flex for you. And telling you, oh, great, no problem. This is what we used to do at WeWork. We got you, space as a service. If, if your needs change, just move to this other building. It's like you're still outsourcing. It's still operating as a landlord mentality where you're, you're, you're effectively outsourcing the real estate pains to the occupier. What's happening now is like, no, 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 no. We're staying here, and you're going to change the stuff around me in some way because we just hired a new C-level person or we just acquired a little company or we fundamentally are rethinking what it means to have an office and we want this actually to be a collaboration space and all focus work is gonna happen remotely from people's homes and blah, blah, blah. And so those kinds of things, as Anthony really correctly said, are it's not that we need an office, it's that we want an office. And the moment we said we want an office, we expect a level of service for that that doesn't exist today. And so, we're focusing on customers who want to be in spaces for six months, for 12 months, for 18 months, 36 months, up to 72 months. If you're building for longer than that, we're not your right solution. Go traditional construction methods, go all that. If you're building for shorter, we have an amazing set of suppliers that we've onboarded from North America, from Europe, from Latin America that make all kinds of amazing prefabricated component trees, all these things from flex duct to cardboard ducts to flex sprinkler head connections to conference rooms, to classrooms, to chairs, to all of these kinds of things you know, that, we've, that we've been working to curate with these things that can provide you a fully functional office in whatever arrangement you want with 100% reusability, or let's call it 99% reusability. Because we're not, we're not sending wet trades into the field. We're not custom building any millwork. We're not doing any of that stuff, right? Like the, the old model where you'd have like a column, like jab a conference room right through the middle and people have to walk around this column or have to like go like this because they can't see the screen in our world can't exist because a conference room is a product and the column and the product can't you know come into one another and so the call so the so our, our approach to programming our approach to space planning our approach to all of those things are fundamentally different than than it used to be what does this gain us uh sorry just to finish my thought so what does this gain us it gains us the ability to say um, hey, Marriott, Office Marriott, whomever, you know, whether it's IWG or whether it's WeWork, whether it's Notel, whether it's RxR or Brookfield wanting to have their own flex space um, operations, um, you own this conference room, you own these assets, 
And we're going to help you flex them and change them and upgrade them and all these kinds of things over time. And we're going to do that above board. We're going to do that legally. We're going to file the right things. We're going to do all this stuff, but we're going to do it fundamentally with items that can be repurposed, reused, moved around because we're optimizing for reuse, for speed, and for cost. And right now, if you just by not deploying traditional construction methods in New York City, we're getting pricing for fully functional office in the fifty to five dollars a square foot. When we were building, you know, at scale with WeWork in New York City, we were doing one hundred and fifty dollars a square foot, and that was an amazing price. And really, the market price is about two hundred fifty dollars a square foot, and that's because you're building, you're building something that you think is going to last fifty years, but people are going to demo it. They're going to demolish parts of the space, the whole space, whatever it is, within three to five years, definitely within seven, guaranteed. And that's just bad. It's just bad business practice. It's not just bad for the earth. It's just bad business. You're paying for things you fundamentally don't need. And so what, is, what can we offer you at $50 a foot that, that meets that function, that is also reusable, and it can also be a great experience, actually a better experience? Because you don't have to like, you know, you don't even have facility downtime and like construction workers closing down half your floor plate to do all these kinds of things. And like, it's just, it's a messy world and there's a better way of doing it. And so that's, that's very tangibly sort of what we're doing from a product. Can you, can you clarify to me, right? Cause I, cause I can see what, what you're, what you're shaping in the market, which is basically uh, that you're adapting built culture to the way people work uh, on, you know, on the commercial side in terms of sales, you know, you're actually just making things more appropriate for the, for the, for the times we're living in, but also in doing so, you're capturing the opportunity to reuse and, you know, re, re, you know, re, refurbish um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the surroundings. Are you focused on, Furniture on fittings on fixtures. I mean, firstly, what is the precise technical focus, and then just give, give us some flavor on. I mean, if it's not a secret, exactly how you kind of get that you know durability and cycling going. Are you, is it things that you've designed and got manufactured, or are you finding a way to kind of bring things back into you know the 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 the, the, the stream? Um, yeah. So nothing secret. Um, we have we have. Um, we haven't started this bit yet, but we're um, you know we're going to try to be as as transparent as we can um, throughout all of this um, because we we believe at a very fundamental level that uh, flexible space, flexible lease arrangements enable flexible space, and flexible space is better for your bottom line. It's also better for the planet. So I think that like it's it's one of those situations where things are beginning to align if we can figure out the supply chain. So, um, in the service, in, right. no incentives. It gets back to incentives. Yeah, that's right. So, so what we're we're positioning ourselves as we're not developing our own product. Uh, when I say like FFNE or wall systems or or, or conference, there's actually a whole world of amazing companies out there who do these things. They don't have, but they never get specified by architects and engineers because code, uh, local codes and local culture actually is not used to, say, deploying a lot of these systems. So they become mostly 
um, products that get deployed, what is what's called day two, sort of after opening, once your sort of facility um, um, inspections and permits and all these things have come through, facility management teams are like, hey, I need a phone booth. So they just buy a phone booth. If that phone booth is placed in front of an exit path, nobody's checking. Um, I mean, they should really, but very few people are sort of, there's, there's a fundamental divide between design, you know I mean, like architecture, engineering, interiors, materiality, traceability, arrangement logics, all these things, and operations. And so what we're saying is that, and usually construction is in the middle, right? It's like design, construction, and then you operate. What we're saying is, eliminate construction for a minute. Because it's a poor tactic to deploy when you know your space is going to change three years. Just forget it. Instead of construction, we're going we're gonna to use install and deployment and these kinds of things. So eliminate construction for a moment and then bring these two worlds closer together um, because the number of transactions is going to increase, but the size of those transactions is going to decrease drastically. So how do you do a project that's $50,000? Well, today, uh, or $5,000, which should be a little quick renovation, a quick, like, you know, hey, this conference room needs a little upgrade. Today, those kinds of engagements, this long tail of projects that happens in all of our cities and all of our facilities don't get captured in a really good way anymore. Um, and so what we're, what we're trying to do is, is we want to be, um, uh, we're, de we're developing really, um, let me be like really clear about this. The product we're developing is curating the world, figuring out the regulatory issues of deploying this stuff, and then helping you deploy it and flex it over time. And we, we give a ton of feedback to these product manufacturers and suppliers who could be furniture companies or prefabricated brands and say, hey, in this municipality, you may need this. In that municipality, you may need that. Hey, with this particular landlord, they're asking for X, Y, and Z because this is how they like it. So that the technical details, the technical difficulties that typically architects and engineers do to deploy something into a particular space is a very hefty, um, uh, let's say, series of specifications and decisions that we're working our belief is that long-term, architects and engineers' know-how should not be deployed as paper products, drawings, and specs, but instead it should be deployed as software. That's really what we're doing. We're specifying stuff. We're arranging it. We're bringing it out into the world. And I'm just saying that I'm not going to walk away the day that the building opens or the space opens. I'm going to help you manage it over time. And then landlord, when this tenant goes away and a new tenant comes and they want four conference rooms to pick two, I'm gonna be there working with you to do this. And so we don't work per project, we work per portfolio. So we partner with you at a portfolio scale. Anyone's portfolio pre-COVID was typically under some sort of turnover, anywhere from say like five to 15% of your portfolio was undergoing some sort of turnover in any given year. And we, so we're, but we're looking portfolio wide and then helping you with it five to 15%. Right now there's a peak in the market, but it's, you know, we expect that peak to be to, to eventually to go away. But, but the reality is that that's what we're doing. We're deploying this stuff and we're, we're, we're trying to create, um, let's say we're trying to drastically lower the cost of the renovation or the, re, or the uh, repurposing transaction that every space happen you know has over time i think it you know i think there's some numbers from the uk that the typical office space has about 40 major renovations in its life cycle and then hundreds of little ones like a pantry upgrade or things like that that don't even get counted so though mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, so I was just going to interrupt. I mean, I was, I was just going to kind of summarize in just to kind of get to see to kind of see if this if this if this resonates with you. What I see that you're doing, uh, the company's called is it called Kanoa or Tri Kanoa? How do I? Yeah, Kanoa. Kanoa is uh, just canoe in Spanish. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor for a vehicle that's man-made um, from natural resources that can last many hundreds of years. Um, and it and it keeps you above water because <laughs> it seems like the, what you're doing, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it seems it seems like what you're doing, right? It is a kind of you know, it's like a, maybe it's like four corners of the of the square where there's there's design skill, there's supply chain management and monitoring, and you know, kind of longitudinal optimization over time. Then there's dealing with regulation and encouraging regulation to facilitate this culture of redeployment um, and then this kind of curatorial dimension as well what do you guys want where is your company going is, is it something like that that those four sort of poles like bringing those those closer together and offering it as a kind of software driven rolling service to a portfolio yeah i think i think that's i think that's true so it's it's i think that's accurate you know it's 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 productizing architecture and engineering in a way where um, in a way where it can be deployed at scale across many different spaces um, in as, as quickly, as safely, as cost-effectively, and ultimately as sustainably as possible. We, you, know, we, we, you guys mentioned energy. Uh, you mentioned embodied energy. There's embodied energy in interiors as well. And interior transactions are much more common than new building and new construction transactions in a, in a typical city. Um, so all we're saying is instead of trying to design out change, change from the process, it's like, what if change was a given? What if change was a feature, not a bug? Um, and we're trying to enable that. And so in order to enable that future, absolutely, we have to have a component of this that's, that's design and curation. There's a component to this that's regulatory, uh, to teach municipalities about these new products. And then there's a component of this that has to do with um, uh, logistics and supply chain because these these goods may still last 40 years, but they're going to be used over those 40 years potentially at two or three or four locations, and potentially up to 10 or 15 different, um, uh, let's say, occupiers. In the same way that every time any one of us goes to a hotel, they're not giving us a new new mattress or a new bed, right? And the, even the sheet is washed, right? Like we're People are used to getting this new stuff, but the reality is that it's just not going to go that route anymore. Uh, Anthony, I want to hand over to you in one second because I, I know that you've got an enormous amount to, to share. I just want to comment a little bit to kind of swing off what Feder shared about Kanoa to, to clarify some sort of how we're coming because there's lots of similarities. But I'll sort of also do that by by, by pulling three strands that, that you're leading with, Anthony. I mean, your big, um, I mean, your, your trillion dollar hashtag space as a service. Is becoming so portentous in so many ways, right? I would see that's the kind of sort of larger framework of discussion in which the incentive conversation is really taking off, right? Because we were approached very recently. Um, I mean, it's not been announced yet. I mean, this ink has to be dried, but basically by the premium co-working space curators in Stockholm, like super premium ship, the very, very best. And they said that we want to add services to our property and make it an inherent part, not just how we run and, and facilitate 
um, these the properties we currently have and how we design new buildings. And what, what's happened is that they said, well, why don't we do a joint venture where your last meter service platform and space engine design tool just is part of our toolkit to curate better places. And th what they're really saying with that in language that I'm learning very slowly, but I'm learning is basically we will generate an incentive, a suite of incentives for the emerging market that is so compelling that the value will be there, the health will be there, the sustainability will be there. Uh, let's go and build that. And I find that very exciting because where we've struggled, right, is to sell into the market on a very kind of easy breezy basis, our vision, which is that basically you, it's very similar to, you know, some of the dimensions you're thinking fed, that you've got to assume that lifestyle can and will change, but you have to integrate the design with it. If you want people to drive less, you have to design buildings with less parking, you can't just take away the parking, you've got to add mobility, right? And this dialectic between the services and the design and the integration processes that facilitate it at the design and build phase and the operations and optimization phase, that's what we really want to focus on. Now, what's happened is that we get people buying our offer, but they don't know what to do with it. And, and, and how we're kind of puzzling coming back to market with our second generation product is basically being, well, we're probably going to have to do a shit ton more curation. We can't explain it to them. We'll just have to do it. Not dissimilar from what you know, your approach is there, which is basically being a hand-holding partner on a much more engaged basis than currently we presume. Um, you know, these, these co-working guys, particularly the founder of it, the, the sort of New York Stockholm-based entrepreneur, has said, no, no. Let's strip away all the theory. Let's just get straight into curation and incentives, right? And that's super fascinating to kind of pull this background is that my big sort of theory of transforming the built sector towards sustainability, which is integrating lifestyle and services into design and operations and, you know, managing and supporting that boundary, that's theoretically good, but needs to move faster. The way to do it is to come back to what you know, you're saying, Anthony, and what you've, you know, you've, I think, discovered or invented um, fed curation and incentives, right? I mean, I think that's part of the future of sustainability is to stop talking about these very abstracted variables, climate and carbon and, you know, I mean, even energy in a way, and just be very, very hard-nosed and clear-sighted about the way in which quality and in financial incentives can get all the results we want. It, also, I mean, it does require a redefinition of some of our jobs. And I think this is why it's a little hard. I look at, I'm trying to teach myself and I think I've realized over the years that it's like, if we look at a city, right? Architects and engineers have defined their job as the makers of new buildings. That's it. They don't touch the 99.9% .9 of the existing world at all. They're only fighting for that 0.001% of turnover that may exist in whatever open lots or demoed lots that have that you know have been opening up and that has ever been in the world. And so the, the the new construction discussion is fundamentally separate from the operations discussion. And it used to be, and it still is, especially here in the state, that the operations phase is like, oh, we don't, you know, that's for other people. That's we're licensed professionals. Like we, you know, you need us somewhere else. I like to look at Kanoa as the first design company that fundamentally um, uh, operates 
only on the operation stage of a large portfolio of work. If you only have one location, we're probably not your, your client. If you're trying to do new construction, we're not your client. We want people that operate large portfolios or own large portfolios, and we want to look at that as a system that can be optimized and optimized and optimized. And the way to optimize that is, is without scale is really difficult. And so we're saying, okay, if there's the city scale, but then within the city or within many cities, there's these portfolio managers that are just tremendously large. I mean, Anthony knows this more than I do, but even large occupiers like a Microsoft or a JP Morgan, the amount of square footage that they have is tremendous. And it is so badly optimized. All the way from energy to waste to reuse to, to even you know, knowing what a particular space is being used for, right? Like, um, it is, it is a, a huge world. And, and, and all that we've decided to do is like, why fight for this 0.001% of turnover per year? Let's fight for, you know, let's go after this gigantic amount of work that's over on this side. Sure, it may be like less sexy transactions, but if we can amass a bunch of these, there's, there's a potential here to have huge impact, to have great financial uh, alignment of incentives between landlords and, and, and us, and to provide a great product for a customer who's like, hey, I, I had a great office experience for 36 months. We changed it seven times and nobody charged us a penny extra to do so. And now we're out, we don't need it anymore. So pay for what you use is the 21st and early 20th early 21st century, I think, model. I think that that's, that's what people expect now. Um, so it's my diatribe for. <laughs> I, I think I think actually though, there's there's possibly a paradox here that you're talking about people wanting things for for thirty six for thirty six months and then want, wanting something else. But I, I, I I'm wondering if that's actually rather rather leaving. A big prize, a big prize on on one side, because it, it it strikes me. There's all this talk about people want short leases. Why do they want short leases? Flexibility. But when you think about it, what does flexibility mean? Flexibility. What they really want is not to be stuck with something they really, really don't need or can't afford or is completely wrong for them um, for seven years longer than than they want it. That's right. But the flip side is moving office is a real pain. I don't believe most companies actually want to move office. And my feeling is what we're really talking about here, if you think about it just straight on sustainability, at the moment, across the average of the industry, and yes, I know there's loads of caveats, and in many cases, this doesn't apply, but the average utilization of office space is around about 50%. And the average satisfaction with does does your office enable you to be productive is around about 50%. Now that to me, and that's from Leesman study data. Now that to me is a huge, massive 92 point hashtag double fail. <laughs> that it means people aren't really, don't really like your product and they're not using it that much. Mm -hmm. So just a straight sustainability thing would be, say we set a target that we want space to be utilized 70% of the time with 70% satisfaction. That, if you hit that, that would have a dramatic effect on, on sustain, sustainability because you'd be using space a lot more efficiently and a lot more effectively. 
And what the, the way I'm looking at it here, in terms of whenever I talk to people about space as a service, is I always say it has two meanings. It has the meaning that um, space as a service is space that you can procure on a flexible basis, be it a, an hour a week or whatever. But the much bigger meaning of space as a service is that is space that provides me with the with the spe space that provides me with the services I need as and when I want them. So providing me with the right space for the for my job to be done now. And then the after in the afternoon I will have a different job to be done. So provide me with space that is optimized for my new job job to be done. And I think so much about what, what you're talking about is enabling space itself to flex to enable people to have exactly the right type of space for their job to be their job to be done. So it strikes me that I think of this as like a, a monitor, a monitor and, op and optimized situation that we need to really understand much better how people are using their space, where, where, they're, where they're going, why are they going there, and who, who's doing what where. And when we really start to understand the, the real physical, emotional, um, logistical realities of space, with what you're producing, I can then optimize it because I'm monitoring. So, uh, so I know that Anthony does this, that, and the other. And at the moment, the space, the space he's doing it in is not optimum for that. Can we can we optimize that? Yeah, we can move that wall there. We can change we can change this without without reinventing the wheel, without knocking down a knocking down a wall. It's like I, I like to talk about work, workplace as software. You know what it's like in software: build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn, build, measure, learn. In real estate, we stop at build, and it tends to be beautiful on day one, and then everyone's gone, and it's preserved in aspic, and then doesn't doesn't work because we don't monitor and then we don't optimize. So it strikes me that to, to start with what you're doing should enable utilization and satisfaction to be pushed for at a much higher level than the industry accepts as the norm. I mean, the frightening thing about 50% utilization and 50% satisfaction is the in industry basically goes, meh, you know, well, that's what, that's what we do. That, that's, that's our product, guys. 50%, that's, that's good, isn't it? And it's not. We all know it's not, not good. So we need, we need systems and capabilities to allow us to operate at much higher levels of utilization and satis satisfaction. But then if I'm, if I'm in, your, in your space and the three years is up, the point is that space really, really knows me now and it really, really knows my company. And it's like, you know what it's like, and you know, AIs get better. You know, why is Google so good? Because people use it so much. Why, why would this be so good? Because people use it so much. And we know so much about this space. If I move to a different space, I basically lose all my learning and I've got to re relearn the space. How well does this new space suit what we're doing now? Whereas I've got to the end of my 36 months, and this place is like optimized perfectly for me, so I'll keep going. You know, why, why, would, why would I go unless something big happens? But I have the flexibility that if I have to go, because I need to go for whatever reason, fine. But otherwise, I think the chances are 
you're more likely to keep an occupier. So I, I, I genuinely think there's a real paradox that landlords and investors are going, and the whole industry is going to get to grips with over a number of years, that we've got this obsession that, no, we need a 10-year lease, we need a 15-year lease, and we need a great covenant because that's our security. But we all know quietly on the side that it's no security at all because, like, oh, fun, funny enough, that that entity that signed the lease doesn't exist anymore, hasn't got any money. So, we, you know, we know, we know this. Um, but that's what we go for, as opposed to saying, what I really want to do to, with you, Mr. Customer, is instead of selling you something the most I possibly can for the longest period of time, I actually want to sell you the least amount for the shortest amount of time. But I am going to optimize the hell out of this because I'm going to work alongside you as a partner, as a value-add partner, to continually monitor, understand your business, and permanently optimize your space because I'm not selling you an office, I'm selling you a productive work workforce. And you're going to pay me at least 50% more per square foot than you would have done historically. So you're, you're paying a hell of a lot more, but actually you're probably still saving money because I'm going to be running this space at 70% and 70% satisfaction, whereas previously you were, do, you were doing it on that. So I, I do think that in, in, I, I completely un understand the, the framing of we're building for the short term, but you're, you're, not building you're not building products with a short shelf life, are you? No. You're not building products that in three years' time you're going to bin it. You know, it's not fast, it's not fast fashion and three wears and three wears and you're out. That's right. So in par paradoxically, I think I think we could find that the the, the most the, the most flexible monitored and optimized spaces are gonna be like a flywheel. They're just gonna get be better all all the time. And I and I suspect we'd be surprised how long people end up staying, staying in, in, in offices that are built the, this way. And you're not going to have an argument at the end of the three years about is this space good or not, because I'm going to be able to say to you, right, there's your net promoter score, because we've been running a net promoter score with your employees for three years. And we started at 45, they're now at 86 net promoter score. So, you, you know, we're doing it with providing a good job. We, we can guarantee that against your K, KPIs, we're satisfying them. What's it worth? Yeah. Well, it's, it, you know, this is a fair, a fair price. And yeah, you're giving me exactly, exactly what I, what I want. So yeah, I, I, I do, th I, again, go, going back to this is absolutely the way we should be doing things. But again, sticking Adam Smith hat on, and you think, well, actually, this is this is economically the most sensible place to do it. But it does require a different mindset and business model from the the landlord or investor, because I am now your I am now your partner. That's right. To an extent, you 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 know, master master <laughs> landlord and tenant is master and servant, isn't it? But we're not doing we're not playing playing that game anymore. Basically, I want to charge you a hell of a lot more, but I need to do it in a way you're still going to be smiling. smiling. And this, I think, is, is, is the way to get there.
So, so with a view to sort of, sort of rounding off the conversation, because it feels like it's actually just starting, but I, I, I think for all of our sakes, we should, we should park it soon, this one soon, and, and it feels like there's, there's more to come. But, but with a view to, to rounding off and, and bringing up some threads for more, for more discussion and hopefully with you know, bringing other, other voices in, I mean, the, the issues that I can see that keep persisting, right? I mean, there's different ways of framing it, but the three that keep coming up is incentives, curation, and roles, all right? I mean, it's clear that incentives are transforming themselves into a kind of, um, in principle, if we get it right, a kind of synergy between what have previously seen as cost centers, they become value drivers, both in cultural, but also in financial terms. Um, there's the issue of, uh, you know, um, uh, of, of roles, who is, you know, who is um, doing, the things that are required. And it seems that these roles kind of synthesize and come together with the issue of incentives. And in, I mean, at least in my mind, it keeps coming up, the principle of curation. What do you guys feel, just to maybe sort of as a, as a last sort of stab at this, this for now, are the, 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 what are the roles that need to evolve um, and, and what needs to change to make that happen, right? Because Fed, you're pretty unique in this regard. Um, unusual in having a sort of architecture and environmental science background and Anthony you're a you're a you're a true polymath you're 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 a businessman you're a you're an author and you're an aesthete I mean that in a non-cynical way <laughs> a hugely curious uh, student of the human experience and so w w what would you say both both you guys is the are the roles that need to evolve to maybe cover these bases and what are the blockages or the steps that need to be taken to kind of get more of those people where they need to be? I'll go first so Fed can, can finish us off. I, I see this as a mix of, um, of human and machine. I, I, I believe we are fundamentally moving to a human, human plus the machine world. It's undoubted that the machines are going to do an awful lot of what we do to date. Fortunately, we are still, for the however many many years, still in a situation that the machines are good at what the machines are, and humans are good at what what human humans are good at. So I I think we need we need much better um, much better better technical people. We need much better da data people. We need much better humans in commerce, in the sense of people who have spent the time and effort to develop their human skills. You know, imagination, critical thinking, judgment, all of these things are things, are things that can be, can be taught. And, and so you need people who have been taught them. Just take empathy, you know, empathy is incredibly important. Machines and empathy, they don't mix, they don't mix so, so well. A lot of people aren't very good at empathy, but people at least have the capability of being empathetic, machines don't. And then in the middle, you need you need you need people who can translate human to tech and tech and tech to human because people with really really good human skills tend to tend to not have particularly advanced technical skills this is not a criticism it's just that you know it's like um serena williams is really good at tennis i don't know what she's good at golf you know actually golf 
Golf's is probably great. That, so. <laughs> You know, hand-eye coordination. Regular humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> everything, and and also, you know, the, the, a lot, a lot of tech people, um, human skills aren't aren't their strong strongest suit, and you do need you do need this this translator role in in the middle, who people for people who can translate one to the one to the other, because ultimately. There's a really good article from years ago in the Harvard Business Review called "The Ultimate um, The Ultimate Market Marketing Machine," and it was written by a number of bigwig marketers about how to create the best marketing department. And but it's applicable across the board, and they 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 split people up into thinkers, feelers, doers. So you've got think thinkers who are people with very good abstract and critical thinking skills. Feelers, people with very strong empathetic skills, and doers, people who simply are very skilled at whatever it is you need to do. So if you start, if you start breaking down real estate in the sense of real estate is now a service, it's not a product. So we're selling, we're delivering a service to our customer rather than selling them a product. You you need thinkers, you need feelers, and you need doers. You need technical people, you need people with very strong human skills, and you need people who tran translate translate in in the middle so it's a the, the real estate company of the future is is a very different beast from most i mean some people are going down this route already but it's largely a different a different animal to that that exists at the moment so it's you know more more rounded um service orientated human human centric but with very strong um technical technical and data skills as well before I pass over to Fed, uh, 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 Anthony, is this what your uh, Real Innovation Academy is talking about? Right? Is this the kind of like this balancing of the strands of technical and and kind of you know em empathetic and humane? Is that is that kind of framing your work with the Real Innovation Academy? It, 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 it was it was the starting point for it. The, the Real Innovation Academy run, runs an online course run by written and run by myself and Draw Poleg, who I imagine many people. Uh, listening to this will know and the starting premise for it was that prop tech people tend to know nothing about real estate or far too little and real estate people don't know much about technology so the the, the starting premise of the course was to try was to was to help real estate people understand what questions to ask of their technologists and for technologists to understand the incentives, the frameworks, and the structure of of real estate, so the two could, the two could work together. So yes, that 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 is the yeah. premise. Of it. Go to real, realinnovationacademy.com for more information. Fed, you, you're you're doing it right. So that's a start. But do you have a sense of how more people can come into this kind of curatorial evolved role to drive sustainability through incentives? I mean, how how is that going to happen? Well, I think it's, 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 let's say that the gold rush of the 20th century when it comes to building stuff in real estate was that whether it was in Asia or in, or in, or in the Western world or Africa or wherever the growth came from, um, really it was, it was us going from 2 billion humans in 19... 
40 uh, to however many billions we are today. And so that's, that was growth everywhere. The world optimized itself for growth. And I think what we're going to um, begin to see now is that there's still growth in different parts of the earth, but there's now a huge amount of maintenance, which is maybe less sexy if you call it that, but yielding more and more out of our current asset base and our current cities and neighborhoods and portfolios or however you want to use that is becoming a, a really important part of any real estate company. Um, and so, um, especially because of what Anthony said about this becoming a service as opposed to a product. Um, when we look at it that way, I do see roles fundamentally changing in the sense that we're going to have to see um, you know, training um, um, uh, shift. We're going to see things like, um, for example, um, uh, the, the traditional, for example, in the States, the traditional design bid build model, which is applied in exactly the same way, whether you're building a hospital, a super tall stadium, or a single family home. <laughs> like these kinds of things, this sort of one size fits all solution for the whole of real estate is, is just, it's, it's, it's just no longer necessary. I think technology has enabled us to have tech and process that is product specific. And I think we're going to see over the next 10 or 20 years or 30 years, even like the Autodesk of the world are going to get unbundled into lots of little tiny bits and tools that are going to be exacto knives at only one thing and terrible at everything else. And so, but right now, right, like it, it's, it's, it's the one size fits all solution for everything. One size fits all solution for office, for retail, for software to build buildings, for software to renovate buildings, for software to manage buildings. Everything is sort of the same. Um, I do believe that there's going to be this explosion of, of, of compartmentalization, um, which sounds bad, but actually I think it's going to un, un, uh, uh, unleash a, 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 a significant amount of, of optimization in very specific segments of the industry. Um, and so um, how this translates to changing roles and, 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 and all of that, I, I'm going to do what I often do, which is I quote, there's this fantastic book um, uh, by this, um, uh, who is this, Michael uh, Suskind uh, and, his, uh, and his research partner, I think they were out of the UK, but a book called The Future of the Profession. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. which, is, which is effectively talking about how, and, and, and we use this quite a bit internally at our company, and I've used it you know, over the years. Effectively, what it is, is it's talking about how the biggest bottleneck today to delivering um, um, expertise in many professions is the human hour. You have eight hours a day and whoever is the highest bidder for those eight hours is going to get those eight hours and everybody else gets nothing because there's only so many humans who have these things. And so we're, we're going to see a shift where professional knowledge in the form of um, sustainable uh, expertise, architectural expertise, engineering expertise, building sciences expertise, whether it's acoustics or any of these things is gonna be packaged and packaged and packaged and packaged in, in, in software, not in human services. And that's a great thing because it allows us then to say, instead of selling, um, instead of having this bottleneck, 
it allows us to actually build a body of work that builds upon itself and gets better and better and better. The world needs more knowledge about our physical connection. And it's and right now it's siloed and these like mega Arabs or Genslers of the world that know everything and they just, you know, and that they sell it and sell it and resell it and resell it and repackage it. At the end of the day, um, that's going to, all of these companies, I think are at the highest level of risk because they either become technology companies themselves or software is going to come in and take a lot of their work. And they're going to have to rush to like the hyper, hyper, hyper custom projects and buildings of the world, which is still a great amount of business. But a lot of what really pays the bills, the sort of generic work that they don't publish on their websites, is going to go is going to go to a productized world. And so what we're saying is, we look at we take a step back and we think small scale multifamily housing, retail, and office space are ripe for productization. They don't all need to be different. They all need to be great. And reinventing the wheel one over and over and over again just doesn't make sense for those typologies anymore. And so a productized solution has the potential of lowering costs, a much higher level of satisfaction, whether it's measured through MPS scores or sales or however you do it, stickiness. Um, and that's, you know, and so I, I see that these, these three, we've identified that these three sectors are going to go that route. And so the roles have to fundamentally change in saying that like architects and engineers are going to have to learn to package their know-how in software. And that software is going to learn to listen to the end user to get better and get better and get better and get better. That's right. I think that, that um, your, your point that the, the productization and the, I think compartmentalization makes it sound negative, but I would say, you know, hyper-specialization or even verticalization of competencies into kind of packages that have specific outputs are very closely aligned. Um, I, what I would say is, and you've actually mentioned this before as part of your model, but I just want to, Surfaces, and we're very focused on, is that um, the, the the premise that the role of the designer and the engineer is 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 like finished when the building has been constructed and is handed over to, to to tenants is very wrong, right? We have to make the assumption that ongoing optimization is not only possible, but it's the intent of the project. Uh, that's what you said, uh, Fed. That you know, change has to be rather than something that exists, but something that you actually you know absorb and take it take to heart as part of the nature of how you design buildings. I think that shift is going to be particularly painful for the Genslers of the world who don't have a culture and I think don't have a a competency set that, that lends itself naturally to being always around. I mean, one of the reasons for that I think is that they'll have to be confronted with the, the poor quality of what they produce, which is your point, Anthony. They just you know, dump it and run. Uh, but I think that piece itself will actually it be a quite a significant driver of a change in competencies because, you know, from design and engineering to something more operational, something more curatorial, something more dynamic, I think that, that comes back to your point, Anthony, about the sort of balance between hard skills and soft skills or the technical and the you know, and the, the social, the psychological, because some of the optimization piece isn't just, well, so, so, so the, the data that's being embedded in the software that you're describing, um, uh, certainly from our perspective, is very contingent, right? The science of it is very poor. And the best we can do is use it as competent people in, a, in it as a kind of guidance tool, but it relies on us actually maintaining that balance if we want to be involved in this kind of ongoing optimization. 
and maintaining the balance between these kind of technical skills and the more sort of you know, psychological and, and social skills. What I can say about this conversation is that it has absolutely exceeded my expectations and hopes for going beyond boring, green, fucking moral shit, right? Because I think as concerned as we are about the issues, I think none of us have a lot more time to talk about, you know, lead certification or some sort of petty ante, you know, little nibbling away at the puzzle for the sake of some moral, you know, um, tick. Uh, I think we're much more concerned about not just large-scale change, but the drivers of it and the, you know, the roles and the opportunities within it. Uh, I hope you found it pretty useful. I mean, I, I personally think if we, you know, if people like us are having conversations like this, um, there must be more people that want them, right? I mean, I just don't think there's enough of these kinds of conversations. Well, I, I, I take away from this an idea from Anthony, which I'm going to uh, politely steal, uh, which is that, uh, we're gonna make an objective that within, say, like three years, we'll be selling carbon credits to large construction companies ourselves. So we just found a new source of revenue. <laughs> I would say one, one final point, actually, before we before we sort of start to sign off, Anthony. I mean, I think. Um, my sense, right, I'm just going to speak to you, maybe this, we, 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 this shouldn't be in the podcast, but maybe it should be, is that people like yourself gradually move into the role of curator in some way, right? I mean, the, the, the reality is, is that the people I'm meeting who are presenting themselves as curators of real estate, eh, they have skills, but they have maybe less knowledge than you, right? And I find that fascinating that there's such a kind of convergence and need for like solving these complex problems and focusing on, you know, operationally viable incentives that I don't think you will be outside, <laughs> as it were, the, 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 the creation of these new spaces for very long. I'm sure that one of the steps, I'm obviously speaking out of, out of turn here, but my sense is that Real Innovation Academy and you guys are going to get pulled deeper and deeper into projects. I can't believe that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm going to keep quiet and not say anything. <laughs> <laughs> But, <laughs> maybe maybe it's me maybe it's me just wanting to have other people to blame when it all fucking goes wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, I think what is so, what is so interesting about about this time is to me this feel this feels like 1995, which believe it or not, when it's when I launched my first commercial property web website in the in the UK, which was probably the first one. It was so deeply fantastic in those times this was in netscape 0.9 was out and then you'd go away for a day and it would be 0.92 and you'd have to go for lunch to download it and every week there was there was something new and no one really knew what the hell was going on but you could just get stuck stuck in this is clearly at a much more advanced level and much more the, the whole internet thing is much more complicated now but it's it's fantastically interesting you know the old the old world the old way of doing everything has certainly over the last few months has basically been blown up it's all hanging in the air in lots of pieces and it's up to us to work out how we want to construct it as it as it comes down and it's you know where where are you going to find something more exciting than than this and for whatever anyone says about you know the office is dead or this is dead or whatever Humans spend 90% of their time indoors. So it's not like they're not going to need real estate. 
it, the form factor could change, but what the hell? They still need the product. And we just got to design new things for them. It's great. It's incredibly exciting. As long as we don't screw it all up and blow the world up. But <laughs> great to have you. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll, I'll lightly edit it. There's so much great stuff here and then share it with you for further distribution. So great to have you here. Um, yeah. yeah. So, John, that was, that was a pleasure. Sorry, I have got to scoot out because I've got, I've got something I've got something at five, which is it, it is my, my time. But that was a pleasure. Okay. It's great, great to meet you, Brad. Really, really enjoyed that. You as well, Anthony. Thank you so much. And thank you, John. Let's do it. Let's do it again. Let's say. Absolutely. See you, John.